Welcome to Medication Talk, the official podcast of TRC Healthcare, home of pharmacist letter, prescriber's letter, RX Advanced, and the most trusted clinical resources. On today's episode, we'll be listening in as our expert panel debates which non-statin to use for LDL lowering due to recent headlines about bimpedoic acid. Our guest today is Dr. Stephen Nissen from the Cleveland Clinic. You'll also hear practical advice from panelists on TRC's editorial advisory board. Dr. Reed Blackwelder from East Tennessee State University, Dr. Andrea Darby-Stewart from Honor Health, Dr. Anthony Donato from the Reading Health System, Dr. Douglas Powell from the University of Washington School of Medicine, and Dr. Craig Williams from the Oregon Health and Science University. This podcast is an extract from TRC's Emerging Recommendations panel webinar. Each month, experts and frontline providers discuss current medication therapy topics and practical recommendations to include in TRC's letter articles. The full webinar originally aired on March 20th, 2023. And now, the CE information. Pharmacist Letter offers CE credit for this podcast. Please log into your Pharmacist Letter account and look for the title of this podcast in the list of available CE courses. For the purposes of disclosure, Dr. Nissen reports relevant financial relationships by receiving grants or research support from AbbVie, Amgen, AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Eli Lilly, Asperion, Medtronic, Myocardia, New Amsterdam Pharma, Novartis, Pfizer, and Silence Therapeutics. The other speakers you'll hear have nothing to disclose. All relevant financial relationships have been mitigated. Now, let's join TRC editor, Dr. Lori Dickerson, and start our discussion. And we're talking about this now because you'll get questions about which non-statin to use for LDL lowering based on new buzz about nexplatol or bempedoic acid. And so Steve, to get us started, can you just tell us a little bit about bempedoic acid and how it works compared to statins and other non-statins? Well, very simply stated, uh, it's an ATP citrate lyase inhibitor. That's a step in the pathway uh, that, yeah, there we go, that's wonderful. (laughs) Uh, That's uh, upstream of HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors where they work, which is, you know, uh, where statins work, of course. And so it's along the same pathway, uh, but it does differ from statins in that it is inactive when given orally, not active in peripheral tissues, but bempedoic acid gets taken up by the liver where it's converted to an active form where it can then inhibit ATP citrate lyase. So it's a prodrug, and that is a potential advantage with respect to peripheral adverse effects. Okay, great overview, Steve, to get us going. And a quick question before we get into some of the data that we have. Doug, I'm curious, has bempedoic acid had much use to date in your practice? Have you used much of it yet? No. No. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, trying to get the prior authorization stuff uh, is a challenge, but no, and, and, and none of my colleagues have used much of it, certainly in last six months. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that from you, and I think that that's why we wanted to spend a little bit more time on it in this article uh, to discuss, you know, how it works and some of its side effects, et cetera, that we'll get to later on. And um, I believe that, you know, with the new clinical trial that you're going to share with us, Steve, we'll start to see some more uptake of it. But Steve, um, in our article, we do note that the current labeling says, you know, so far Nexlatol is only approved for certain patients who need more LDL lowering despite a max tolerated statin. And so we'll talk about sort of this indication as it 
currently stands and how that might change as you share some of the new data. Yeah, let me just comment and say that all of the LDL-lowering therapies, including the PCSK9 inhibitors, were initially approved with labels that look like this. And the reason is in the absence of cardiovascular outcome data, then FDA has given very conservative labels to all of the new LDL-lowering drugs. I also should, right from the outset, say that I was the study chair for this uh, trial of vampidoic uh, uh, acid. However, I'm not paid in any way for participation in the trial. Thank you for clarifying that, Steve. And so with that, uh, you did present this late-breaking clinical trial at ACC in early March, and um, we're happy to have you here to share this with us. Could you talk about the CLEAR outcomes trial and uh, a little bit about the patients that were included in the clinical trial? So we started the study in late 2016. To get in the trial, you had to complain of, of adverse effects that began when you started a statin and got better when you stopped. We wanted people to fail multiple statins if possible. So this was entirely a population of statin intolerant patients. About 30% of the patients were primary prevention and 70% were secondary preventions. Very unusual in the contemporary era, none of the contemporary trials of other non-statins studied primary prevention. Both PCSK9 inhibitors and azetamide studied only secondary prevention patients. Uh, we then randomized them one-to-one, 14,000 patients, followed them for a mean of 3.25 years, and the retention of the patients was pretty high. So we had really good quality despite the pandemic. And so, Steve, we uh, summarized the results here to say that Nexlatol prevents one cardiovascular event for every 63 patients at high cardiovascular risk treated for about three years. And then we do go on to say the study is just to define that population a little further is in statin intolerant patients or those who only tolerate a very low dose of a statin, such as a torvastatin, five milligrams per day. And so do you agree with our summary here of the uh, CLEAR outcome trial? I do, although because of the hierarchical testing procedure, we were able to test several endpoints and, and preserve study-wise alpha at 05. So the primary endpoint was, in fact, reduced 13%. That's death stroke, MI, or coronary vascularization. Three component MACE, which was just, just death stroke MI, was reduced 15%. Mm-hmm. MI was reduced 23%, mm-hmm. and coronary vascularization reduced 19%. After that fourth component, there was no longer statistical significance because the upper confidence interval then was a greater than 1.0. Got it. Brother. I just okay. add real briefly, though, yes, in that please. previous uh, sentence you showed, we might want to be a little more explicit. And uh, that 63, I'm not sure which differences you're using or which of the MACE endpoints Steve refers to you. That's 63 patients for MACE 4. For MACE 4, four. yeah. Okay, well, we have talked about whether or not we want to uh, be more specific on that cardiovascular event. And so we can uh, look at that. That's great feedback, Craig and Steve, on this summary. Steve, questions are coming in. What proportion of patients in the trial were on that low dose of atorvastatin? Very small numbers, you know, less than 20%. Uh, okay. So 
these people to get in the trial had to have very well-documented statin intolerance. And we made the patients sign a statement that said that I know that statins can reduce my risk of heart attack, stroke, or death, mm -hmm. but I will not take a statin. I cannot tolerate a statin. Mm -hmm. And we made providers sign a similar statement. So we went to a, a lot of great lengths to make certain these were patients that were really unwilling or unable to take a step. Okay, great setting of the stage. We do have audience questions coming in and I do have a slide here. Craig, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, is this number needed to treat? Uh, again, with probably some differences in which uh, outcome we're talking about. And so what are your thoughts about, you know, the ballpark of this versus other non-statin agents that we've got noted here as examples? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, as Steve alluded to, for the primary prevention, and we can revisit if you want to try to break out the, mm -hmm. the third of patients who are high-risk primary prevention versus secondary prevention. But for the most part, our outcomes data is secondary prevention. And, uh, yeah, the PCSK9 inhibitors, it's that's another level of, I think, injectables are challenging for patients, and the cost is more expensive than this, which I'm sure we'll come to. But, uh, yeah, NNT is under 100 in secondary prevention. Uh, yes, this is not novel, but if we're getting close to that for high-risk prevention, that would be different. So. Mm -hmm. You okay. know, NNTs can be misleading, and here's the reason why. Improve it as an NNT of 50, but it had a hazard ratio of 0.94. It was just a 6% reduction, but it went on for seven years. Yes. So really, we ought to normalize NNTs for five years of exposure because that mm -hmm. kind of levels the playing field. So. I'm a little bit cautious about quoting NNTs because they can be very misleading if not understood in that. Yeah, that's a great point, Steve. And, you know, we when we do report NNTs, we do always include that timeline. But you're right, uh, normalizing those to the similar duration would sure uh, sort of level that playing field, wouldn't it? Is that a might to stand out there, Lori? You're closer, yes, but for sure. especially a good point for that drug. Yeah, very good. Okay, well, let's um, move on to our recommendations here. And, you know, our first recommendation, I assume, uh, you know, Steve, you're going to agree with, which is to continue to use statins first line for LDL lowering based on established cardiovascular benefits, safety and tolerability, and low cost, and then consider a non-statin if needed. And Let me so, make that really, yes. really clear. Yes. It's statin first, statin second, and statin third. Mm -hmm. If you can get a patient to take a statin, inexpensive drugs, generically available, very well tolerated, always the first choice. The question is, what do you do if you can't get a patient to take a step? Okay, very good. And Andrea, I wanted to call on you. When in your sort of triaging do you get to considering a non-statin or de deem someone to be statin intolerant? Sort of what are your steps to rule out statin one, statin two, and statin three, as Steve just said? <laughs> Um, you know, it's always about a conversation with the patient. And, you know, as I'm starting, even starting a medication, I'm trying to assess whether or not this is going to be a patient that might tell me that they have a statin intolerance because they got a minor ache or pain after starting the medication because half of their friends told them they had the same thing. So I try and head that off a little bit and have a conversation about the fact that the majority of people don't have those symptoms, that uh, we have multiple medications available and we'll try the one that has the best effect for them with the least amount of side effects. And I can usually 
work with people through a couple of dose adjustments or a couple of medication adjustments before they're like, yeah, I'm just intolerant to statins. I am not going to do this again with you. And then that would be when I would move on to another option. Okay. You know, and as I was, I was actually thinking about that chart and um, the comment about how normalizing the NNT for mm-hmm. a period of time would be helpful. I think the other thing that would be helpful to add to that chart is the overall cost of these medications. Yes. Because I think that in, in addition to efficacy, we have to think about what this is going to mean for our patients in terms of cost. And all of those go equally into that decision making for our individual patients. Excellent point. And we do uh, want to talk about cost um, as we sort through some of these options further on the article. So great point. And Andy, I wanted to just hear from you too about sort of reinforcing or uh, encouraging patients to stick with a statin while they're in-house with you, um, you know, for maybe a cardiovascular or non-cardiovascular event. Is that something that you are often addressing? You know, Steve talks about this a lot with the um, uh, statin intolerances. Uh, people find a million reasons not to take these things. Uh, when they come in and they have their heart attack, their stroke, they're more of a captive audience. And I like to try and get the statins back on then because you have their attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know I often can get them to rechallenge. And unfortunately, that becomes Andrea's problem when they come back out and they, they want to quit it again. But I find that's a, that's a good time to do it. Okay, great. So We've organized the article into two sections, um, and now that we've sort of gotten through the baseline data, uh, let's talk about patients with statin intolerance first. And we do make the recommendation, of course, to follow a stepwise approach to statin intolerance, to assess for other causes, to try different statins, as we've already suggested. And and uh, Doug, I just wanted to check in with you. Is this sort of your approach, too, to assess for other causes and then try to rotate through some different statins in these folks? Yeah, the first thing I do is I look for drug interaction because sometimes somebody's added, you know, a calcium channel blocker or something, and that has suddenly pushed them into statin intolerance. But, yeah, and I, I'm really big on re-challenging them. I just share with them the, the, the studies that have shown what percent of people, when re-challenged, and the groups that get the placebo that have the same thing with the nocebo, and that helps. And then just what's been said, stepwise, trying different statins and sort of doing the shell game and trying to get them over their aches and pains and worry about it. There is one thing to be sure to look for, and that is hypothyroidism and vitamin D deficiency, both of which will pop up from time to time when you correct those, and sometimes people tolerate statins very well. Then if patients feel better on vitamin D or thyroid, definitely. If they feel better on vitamin D, that's more power to them. It is not panned out there as well, but uh, yeah, you get to take the statin, more power to whoever's helping. Very good. Well, let's move on to our next part of the recommendation again for folks who have true statin intolerance, when to consider bempedoic acid. And so, Steve, your thoughts here, we say then consider Nexlatol for high-risk patients who don't tolerate a statin. In these cases, of course, we know it reduces cardiovascular risk and lowers LDL about 20%, plus it doesn't seem to cause myalgia. And so, what are your thoughts on this recommendation? Well, you know, it's interesting because most people will usually start with azetamide. And mm-hmm. uh, the advantage of zetamibe, while it is, in my opinion, the NNT for zetamibe is misleading because that was a quite sick ACS population. You know, in most uh, settings, I don't think the NNT is as favorable. And don't forget that the hazard ratio on that improve it trial was 0.94, mm-hmm. not a big treatment effect, but it's an inexpensive drug. It's widely available. 
What a lot of people are not aware of, and I want to make sure that our listeners are, is that vempedoic acid is available both as a monotherapy and in a fixed dose combination with azetamide. And it's priced about the same for both the fixed dose combination and the monotherapy. So the azetamide becomes essentially a free add-on. And as you point out, it lowers LDL anywhere from 35 to 38%. That's about the same as a moderate intensity statin, albeit at a higher level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So considering, again, for those who are truly statin intolerant, we do have certainly other options, but the bempedoic acid is the, is the agent that has the monotherapy data with cardiovascular outcomes uh, versus the others that are, their data are in combination with statins. Would you agree with that, Steve? You know, I, I think we would impute uh, benefits to the combination product for two, for one very important reason. If azetamide has outcome data that's favorable and Bembedoic has outcome data that's favorable and the two of them lower oh. LDL by more than either alone, it isn't a big reach to believe that the combination is likely to be reasonably effective. You know, we do have some audience questions coming in, and we had been toying with adding another line to this section on statin intolerance that you, of course, could also think of azetamide alone or PCSK9 inhibitors alone in statin intolerant patients. These lack cardiovascular outcome data in patients who aren't on statins, but those would also be technically options, Steve. Would you agree? Absolutely. You know, and for some people, an injectable is not an issue. It's particularly true now that we have Inclisiran, which, as you all know, is a twice a year PCSK9 inhibitor, which is pretty convenient for patients. Mm-hmm. So we have, you know, a number of different options, and what's right for one patient may not be right for another. Mm-hmm. And so, Andy, you're chatting over some comments too, and we do have our cost in the second half of the article, but we don't really say too much about cost of azetamide. What you're suggesting, I'll let you speak to, is, you know, to really put some more of that cost information up up front. Yeah, just how this reads, um, people are going to read your first paragraph followed by statin intolerance and assume that bempedoic acid is next. I'm not sure that that's clear uh, in, in all the guidelines that that is. I don't think NICE agrees. I think you could do this or azetamide, and you're writing it as if this is the absolute next step, and I don't think that's accurate. Got it. We have shuffled this piece around a lot to try to find the right flow, and I think that's a great point that we can consider as we're continuing to make our edits. You know, I do want to spend some more time talking about Nexlatol or bempedoic acid because, again, as, as Doug alluded to in the beginning, folks are not that familiar with it. Some of the downsides that we note here, of course, cost is about $400 a month. Uh, we note that it can bump uric acid levels and to generally avoid it in patients with gout. About one in 10 patients with gout on Nexletol report a flare. And so, Steve, I wanted your comment on that specific side effect first. What are your thoughts about the uric yeah, acid situation? It's shown up in, in all the clinical trials. It showed up in our trial as well. There was about a 1% absolute increase in the risk of gout. And it's been seen across the board. Uh, it also reduces renal tubular excretion of creatinine. Mm. So you'll see a slight increase in creatinine levels, but that is not a reduction in creatinine clearance. It's actually an artifact of the reduced excretion of creatinine. And then finally, we saw for the first time in the trial that we did uh, an increase in colothiasis, about a 1% increase in colothiasis. 
Mm-hmm. Again, if you're treating a secondary prevention patient at high risk for heart attack, death, stroke, you know, you want to weigh the risks and benefits carefully, but uh, it probably becomes much more relevant if you're looking at a primary. Very good. Uh, so we do have the gallstone uh, number in here. And just to back up, Steve, you had mentioned, um, I, I think it's about one in 100 patients will have an elevation in uric acid levels, but one in 10 patients with gout who take Nexlatol report a flare. So just wanted to clarify that, you know, we use that one in 10 based on data for in folks who have pre-existing gout. So that number is a little different uh, than what you just said verbally. Mind that hyperuricemia is treatable. And so if yes. we have patients that we're, you know, treating with a, a uric acid lowering agent, you know, we can mitigate the risk. And that may make some sense in some patients, not mm-hmm. every. Right. Is that, can I ask, Steve, is that an off-target effect on secretion in the kidney? I assume this is not related to what it's doing in the liver and with LDL receptors. It's exactly what it's related to. Both uric acid and creatinine, uh, renal tubular excretion is reduced by benzoic acid. Now, one more question. We're getting questions chatted in to us about the signal with tendon rupture with Nexlatol. That wasn't statistically different. It doesn't appear um, in, in the uh, Clear Outcomes trial, but there is some rumble about it in the media. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this, Steve, if this is um, something for us to be concerned about and consider including in the, in the article. So FDA put the risk of tendon rupture in the label based upon very small numbers in the pre-approval trials. And they put it there out of abundance of caution. We adjudicated tendon rupture with a special committee. And what we saw was a slightly higher numerical incidence that was quite a bit short of statistical significance. So have we taken it off the table? Probably not completely, but we certainly reduced the concern that there is a great excess of tendon rupture. We just didn't see it in the trial. Okay. So in terms of us uh, including it in the article, we've chosen not to from a space standpoint and and, uh, think it's, again, it will be in our clinical resource chart. So I think that makes sense. Now, Rita, I wanted to hear from you uh, because you've chatted into us a little bit also about, again, we're talking about the statin intolerant patient and and, uh, where are the data and considering cost. What avenue are you typically pursuing for your folks who are statin intolerant? Well, we're definitely doing the effort to overcome the mental and potential physical issues of whatever the patient feels is their statin intolerance. I agree with Andrea's comments. It's extremely challenging once someone has decided they can't tolerate it. But when you have a good relationship, you can usually work through some things, and the key is starting low and going slow. When or if that doesn't work, and I put when first because... There's an awful lot to overcome. Any ache and pain is statin intolerance. We really have to use this etamide because of cost. We have good CV reduction data, but in my area, the PCSK9 inhibitors are not covered for the majority of my patients, and most of our patients are Medicaid or we even have a large chunk of uninsured. Okay. Well, that's good perspective, too. And, again, we'll work on uh, getting that uh, balance a little bit more in that section, but I do want to look at the second section of the article, which is now to talk about patients who need additional LDL lowering. And so again, what non-statin are we thinking about for those who need additional 
LDL or lowering, and Steve, we make the recommendation to weigh adding a non-statin for some patients, such as those with high cardiovascular risk, like a prior cardiovascular event, if an optimized statin doesn't lower LDL more than 50% from baseline. And so how does that sit with you as a sort of general recommendation? I don't agree with our guidelines, which is a problem, uh, right. in that I have always been a proponent that the evidence is all things being equal, that lower is better. The European guidelines say get very high risk people below uh, an LDL of 55 milligrams per deciliter. So this idea that somehow there's something magical about a 50% lowering from baseline, you know, is not something that I subscribe to. Having said that, it's all about how much more you need. Mm -hmm. If you have familial hyperlipidemia and you start out with an LDL of 200 and you get put on a high intensity statin and you get down to 120, and you're a secondary prevention patient, then you may need a PCSK9 inhibitor. But if you're getting closer to where you want the patient to be, then azetamide and or vampidoic acid or the combination of vampidoic acid and azetamide make a lot of sense depending on the level of risk. Mm -hmm. And the higher the risk that the patient uh, is likely to experience, the more intensively we want to lower LDL cholesterol. And the guidelines are kind of dumbed down, and unfortunately, they've made them a little bit too dumb. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we went with the 50% in this, in this article for simplicity purposes as a sort of general rule because it was getting a little dicey to go into 70 versus 55 and some of those varying oh, yeah. guidelines, and I think we will address that in a future piece. And so just to give some perspective as to why we chose this as a recommendation. And Andrea, I'm just wondering how this sits with you as sort of, you know, your approach and your patients. Yeah, I, this seems like a, a reasonable approach. I mean, if I'm looking at it from a primary care perspective in a busy clinic and I need a goal to shoot for, this seems like very reasonable. Um, I, I keep coming back to, and I'm, I'm frankly very much struggling with the fact um, that these medications appear to have great benefit, and um, they are medications that seem to be widening our healthcare disparities by being available to some and not all of our patients, and wondering where that truly fits from a primary care perspective. Mm -hmm. Great point. point. Great point. Yeah. Let me just Excellent. circle back for one second just to point out that if you start out with an LDL of 240 and you get a 50% reduction, you're still at 120. Yeah. So that's why I want us to at least think about the nuance of where you end up, not just what percentage. Excellent point. Excellent point. And I um, think we'll work on that here. And I am certain we will be addressing it in a future piece to be able to spend more time going through there. Yeah, go ahead, Craig. So, and then 50% isn't, you know, people are kind of familiar with that because it's kind of where the high intensity versus moderate intensity yeah. stat dosing comes from. And one thing that can work well for patients is whatever the baseline is, as Steve alluded to, pick your 50% reduction target and use that rather than because two years later, we forget what their LDL was previously. It's sure. Patients do like a target. They like knowing that. And, uh, it is nice, but it is nice to have an absolute target. And I agree, it's very hard to parse out the 70 versus 55 data, yeah. but everyone has a number that's 50% of where they start. And that's not a bad way to approach it with an yep. actual patient. Very um, good. The Andrew's yes. point, it's a great point. This is obviously expensive, and if you have insurance, you probably have, might have access to it, and if not, probably not. These percent reductions when combined zetamide is really close to kind of where 
a bilateral sequestrant plus azetamide gets, which had been kind of a favorite go-to for statin intolerant high LDLs. This mm-hmm. kind of get the 35 to 40% range, but this will be some despair. This is an easy way to get it with the well-tolerated pill once a day versus it takes our motivated patients with a lot of cardiovascular disease in their family to really stick with bilateral mm-hmm. sequestrants, but they are inexpensive. And combined azetamide, you know, get in the same range of at least LDL reduction, but without obviously the outcomes data that I can point to that it works. Great point, Craig. And we do have uh, a lot of the uh, outcome data that you're mentioning for all of the different non-statins and different specifics in our clinical resource chart that we've updated this month. But before we go to that, I just wanted to talk about add-ons that were, you know, again, for folks who need additional LDL lowering. And I think uh, our group would all agree that, you know, azetamide would be a good add-on first, especially given cost of about $20 per month. And we've talked about some of the outcome data And we've alluded a little bit to the role of PCSK9 inhibitors. And, you know, Doug, I was curious. We've heard from Reed about accessibility of PCSK9s. And I'm wondering about in your practice, are you seeing uh, many folks actually be able to get approved to use PCSK9s as an add-on? Yeah. I mean, I actually prescribed a number of them. And I really haven't had a whole lot of trouble getting them because, you know, the right patient, the highest, highest risk patient, the patients who, you know, have bad cardiovascular disease, and then are you're trying to get on, they can't take a statin. And then I have a couple of patients with familial hyperlipidemia that, that are very easy to get on these drugs. So, yeah, I've been using them for, for several years pretty easily. And cost-wise, you know, compared to Nexlatol, we have an average cost here noted of about 450 a month versus about 400 a month for Nexlatol. Steve, is that sort of what you are seeing in your practice, too, in terms of cost? Oh, yeah. It's uh, <laughs> it depends on where you are and who you're negotiating with, and there's that's the problem with drug pricing is that it mm-hmm. depends on who you ask and, and and when you ask it. So uh, I think this is a little bit low for the price that most people are being charged for the PCSK9. Okay, or a bit more than that. Okay, we're going to look at that again because we do want to be sure that we uh, reflect that and. Uh, you know, we look at sort of overall pricing and have a formula to calculate our averages here, but that's good information. Okay, so again, we know to consider benpidoic acid and statin intolerant patients, but, you know, should it be used instead of azetamibe or a PCSK9 inhibitor to add to a statin? This is an audience question that just came in, Steve, and of course that's about, you know, the role of the combo. What are your thoughts about benpidoic acid? plus a statin, you know, in, in terms of an option for folks who need additional LDL lowering? So there's a subtlety here. Uh, bepidoic acid alone, not with a statin, lowers LDL in the range of 20 to 25%. Uh, it was 22% in our trial. When added on top of a moderate intensity statin, the LDL lowering is less. The, the percent additional lowering is more in the range of 15%. So there's a diminishing returns issue. Uh, that's not the case with azetamide. The same incremental lowering is observed when you add azetamide to a statin as when you give azetamide alone. Having said that, when you give azetamide and pemphidoic acid, that combo can really be a pretty effective add-on, whether given alone or with a statin. Okay. Now, one last point, Andy, um, we had talked when you had reviewed the article earlier about 
drug interactions, Nexaltol with simvastatin doses over 20 milligrams or pravastatin over 40 milligrams due to myopathy risk with these combos. And I guess I was curious, are you still seeing folks on simvastatin and pravastatin in your hospitalized patients? Not much. Uh, simvastatin, I think, has gone away the most uh, just because of the drug-drug interactions. I still see pravastatin in people that have had intolerance to multiple other statins. Got it. Got it. Okay, well, this has just been a fantastic discussion, sorting through the new data on bepidoic acid, considering its place in therapy versus azetamibe and PCSK9 inhibitors. And again, as a reminder, check out our updated chart, non-statin lipid-lowering agents for more specifics, including impact on LDL, some more about cost, and more details on the outcome data. We hope you enjoyed and gained practical insights from listening into this discussion. Now that you've listened, you can receive CE credit from Pharmacist Letter, just log into your Pharmacist Letter account and look for the title of this podcast in the list of available CE courses. If you're not yet a Pharmacist Letter subscriber, find out more about our product offerings at trchealthcare.com. Be sure to follow or subscribe, rate, and review this show in your favorite podcast app. It helps spread the word about our show and is a great way for you to let us know how we're doing. You can also reach out to provide feedback or make suggestions by emailing us at contactus at trchealthcare.com. Thanks for listening to Medication Talk.